Now, is it, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Is it Eileen Gregorio? Yes. You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. All right, very good. So here we go. Joining me today is Eileen Gregorio, a practicing surgeon by day and mask avenging young adult writer by night. After getting her MD, she did her residency at Stanford, where she met the intersex patient who inspired her debut novel, None of the Above, which is publishing by Bowser and Bray in April of 2015. None of the Above is named as one of the 16 most anticipated YA debuts by Huffington Post, and I'm thrilled to have Eileen join us today. Eileen, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So you have said that you want this book to be like blueberries. So tell us tell us what you meant by that. Oh, that's a great question. So I think that um, a lot of books, when they're so-called issue books, they're sort of pigeonholed as only being meant for kids with those issues. But, you know, as if there's anything I've learned through the Weenie Diverse Books campaign, it's that you know, you don't even you don't don't just need mirror books. We all need window books. I mean, we all read to learn and to l- get a get a, a wider view of the world and to understand the like incredible complexity of the world. Right. Um, now, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about we need diverse books in a moment. But tell us a little bit about what the issue is in this book and and how you came to it. Absolutely. So um, as you said, this book was inspired by a patient I treated during residency who I met when um, she was 18 years old, and I was performing a surgery to re- to repair hernias. And um, she has a syndrome called androgen sensitive syndrome, which is um, a very classic syndrome, one of those zebras, zebra rare diseases that you learn in medical school. Mm. Um, and in the old days, they used to call people who have AIS who have either ambiguous genitalia or sex characteristics that aren't entirely male or female, they used to call them hermaphrodites. Now, mm-hmm. these days, that is not the acceptable term, and that's considered a slur and a really hurtful word by a lot of people. So the the more correct word to use is intersex, um, to describe people who have either internal or external or chromosomal um, conditions where they don't aren't the typical male or female. So in the case of my patient, um, she looked outwardly like a girl, but she had XY chromosomes, um, internal testes, and um, no uterus. Yeah. And um, the the fascinating thing about her was that she had no idea what she had no idea about her condition until she was a teenager. Yeah. And, um, that and that's was, uncommon. That's actually it's actually quite. A relatively common syndrome, um, but people find out about it in in different ways. I mean, yeah. the classic presentation of that actually is girls who go through and never get their period, and then they go to see a doctor who finds out. Um, other people, um, because it actually runs in families, they have they find about it um, at a younger age, and mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, sometimes, but I've heard of inter- intersex individuals who didn't find out. Um, about their condition until their 40s, and that's wow. because there's such a enormous stigma surrounding intersex, you know. And I think that 
that's why I want none of the above to be a blueberry because I want to disperse some of the stigma to show people that the girl next door could literally be intersex mm-hmm. um, and they might not know it, you might not know it, and it just opens up people's minds to the incredible spectrum that gender is, that mm-hmm. um, there's not a male or a female, there's a lot of room in between, and more people than we know um, are in that gray area. And I think that teens these days are so much more receptive to this notion than than ever before. They They seem to have great um, sort of intellectual fluidity and open-mindedness around things like this. Is that what you found in, in researching this? Or, or I, certainly it's got to be hard, like in the case of your protagonist, to have the word of this, um, you know, get out to school where she, she didn't tell people, others told her story for her. But I do feel like we're in better shape these days than ever in terms of understanding and accepting it. But perhaps I have, you know, rose-colored glasses. No, I mean, definitely. I mean, there are polls that show that, like, 50% of all millennials believe that gender is a spectrum. But there's still that 50% that that um, that isn't as accepting. And there are still at large areas of this country where, you know, LGBT rights are constantly being trampled on. I mean, you can't, you, Indiana just happened, you know. Right, right. You know, and, and transgender kids commit suicide at, at a, a ridiculous rate. Right, um, right. But that being said, I'm so heartened by all of the increasing media representations of gender diversity, even the so-called tabloid press. You know, anytime someone someone who who is recognizable in the public eye comes out as gay or lesbian or transgender or even intersex, um, as in the case of some of these youth, youth activists who have come out um, in support of the intersex community, it's um, it's a step forward, and we're constantly right. moving 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 ahead. And right. it just might take a little while for for everyone to get there. Exactly. Now, as much as you are an author, you you work hard for this diversity effort. You're the VP of development for We Need Diverse Books. Tell us a little bit about what We Need Diverse Books is and and what your role is, because I think this is really interesting. Yeah. um, As you may or may not know, We Need Diverse Books started out as a hashtag. I mean, it was essentially a response to the whitewashed initial panel offering by um, BookCon last May. Um, And, you know, a bunch of us authors, uh, including one publisher and some people within the publishing world, um, got together and initially started the campaign to raise awareness of the lack of um, non-majority narratives in children's literature. I mean, the statistics that um, have been um, compiled by the Cooperative Children's Book Center are really startling that only 10% of books include people of color. I mean, We Need Diverse Books has is inclusive in its definition of diversity, so it doesn't only include um, racial diversity and ethnic diversity, but we also include religious minorities and disability and LGBTQI+. And I think that we are we're dedicated to the idea that um, all children need to be seen and mm-hmm. all children need to be known because um, these stories, there's no single story in any group of diverse characters. And, um, and I think that as an industry, the publishing industry tends to tends to move towards the norm, and there tend to be a lot of books that are similar to one one another and that 
the default tends to be, you know, a white heterosexual character, and we're mm-hmm. just trying to change that because there, are, there's an enormous complexity to our world that yeah. our children need to understand and appreciate. Yeah, right. So tell us a little bit about your life as a writer, which I imagine is is something that you do, you know, early in the morning or late at night, given mm-hmm. the um, demands of your life as both a surgeon and a mother, and what kind of early response you've gotten to the book and just, just how this this all came came to be. Um, I actually started writing during my lab year in residency. Um, and that's sort of traditionally the sort of more laid-back year where you're not really rounding at 5 in the morning. You have more eight, like 9 to 5 hours. And that's when I started to write because I'd always wanted to write when I uh, growing up. I, children's books were my best friends. <laughs> and, and where did I, you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York. Um, okay. So if you think that people say that New York is New York City and Buffalo with Alabama in between, and I kind of live in the Alabama area, it was a very, it was a very conservative um, area in which I was one of only two Asian Americans in my class. Yeah. Um, and so it was somewhat isolating in that, um, like, like a lot of kids of color, I just didn't seem, you know, I I was totally assimilated, um, and I had a lot of, you know, internalized self-loathing that I didn't fit in or, or look like other people. So I, I really escaped in books, into books. And um, I, when I as growing up, I always said, oh, I want to be a writer. But then, you know, you get to get to college, you realize that the writing career is difficult. It's, um, and it's, and, you know, I come from a very practical, pragmatic family. And so I went to medical school and I really loved the, um, the social aspect of medicine. I loved taking oh, care of people and meeting people and, and, and reading their stories. And like looking yeah. back, I know that that I'm a better writer because of that. And um, But during my lab year, you know, I had the time to write. Um, an interesting story is that I was actually inspired to write, to, to like actually pursue writing because uh, one of the, one of my high school um, classmates a couple of years ahead of me is Grace Lynn. And right around oh. when she won the Newbery Honor, I was like, <laughs> My gosh, Grace and I were in the same writing class. Why writing group? You know, why did she follow her dream, and why did I? Why did I defer yes. mine? And so um, I made a resolution to write, and um, it took a while. I honestly really write between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. at night, um, and sometimes yeah. it's difficult. Sometimes it's exhausting because I'm just physically exhausted um, during the day. Um, and you know, sometimes my daughter doesn't go to bed until 9:30 or 10, right, right, which right, is always right. difficult. But um, it's a labor of love, and I, I don't think anyone approaches publishing um, who doesn't feel compelled to tell a story. I mean, they don't do it for the money. They don't do it for the fame because it's all it's a, it's a crowded market. It's a tough market. But um, when you have a story to tell, you just want to tell it. I think it's so interesting when you talk about you realize you, you found medicine in that training and that practice appealing because of the storytelling within it. And if you think about it, I, every interaction with a doctor and a patient sort of is that, isn't it? You're sort of living, interacting with these patients and helping them solve their puzzles and solve their Absolutely. stories, right? Absolutely. That's so interesting. It's the way the white questions to ask and having the emotional intelligence to kind of be able to to know what they're not telling you sometimes. Right. Um, and I feel really incredibly lucky that I um, went to Yale Medical School, which is is one of the most benign, kindest medical schools out there with a really um, strong focus on the humanities. Um, okay. And, I, and our dean of students, Nancy Angoff, 
was very vocal in the beginning to tell us, telling us to listen to our patient stories. Yeah. Um, we had our writers group there. Um, two prominent surgeons, actually, surgeon writers are actually my role models, are Richard Seltzer and Sherwin Newland. Sherwin Newland wow. won a National Book Award, and Richard Seltzer has been, I, I started reading his, I, I read his short stories in college, you know, um, and so I became, I, I sort of went into medicine knowing that it was another form of, of narrative. That is so interesting, and I think that the best doctors know that, and then the ones that kind of don't know that or don't practice it that way, I think are less. Well, I mean, from a patient's perspective, they're they're less helpful because we yeah, all do want to go in and be heard. You know, we want to go so in and, and we want that assistance. Yeah, it's so hard because what I'm finding is that in the end, medicine is kind of a, as much of a service industry as anyone anything else. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're providing a service, and so. There's this constant push and pull between the economics of medicine, having to have scheduled patients, but knowing that not every patient fits into a 15-minute time slot. Right. Some of them are an hour, and that's why waits at doctor's offices can sometimes be long. Yes. Yeah, that's know. interesting. Now, so tell us a little bit about um, perseverance, because I know your story, you know, was not one of immediate success as as they rarely are, but it seems like uh, you you. Persevered. Yeah, um, actually, one of the reasons I really um, felt invested in the We Need a Diverse Books campaign to begin with is because my first novel didn't sell, and um, a lot of the feedback we got from three different imprints was that it's too similar to another Asian American book with an Asian American protagonist on our list. Oh my gosh! And and um, they couldn't they couldn't conceive of having two. Of course. Wow! Wow! <laughs> it was it was amazing um, and disheartening, but um, but you know. I think that there are so many stories um, out there about people who don't get published until their fifth or sixth or seventh novel. Right, right. And so I feel like, you know, getting published with my second novel is actually pretty pretty above average. I agree. Um, I agree. <laughs> but the thing is, it's writing's a craft like any other. Um, Lori Hulse Anderson once said that she thinks it takes as long to become um, – and established professional authors, it does to become a medical professional. There you and go. You would, that you would advice, know. That advice really run true true to me because it, it it is a long road, and the industry is constantly changing too. I mean, it's funny when I first came to YA literature, I was thinking of the books that I grew up with as a child, which are much tamer, you know, much more almost middle gradey than yeah. the current YA books. Um, there really wasn't a YA. Uh, there, like some, a lot of adult books would now be published as YA, and some middle books would now be published, middle grade books would now be published as YA. So uh, there was a lot of, uh, there's a huge learning curve in knowing um, not only how to tell a story, but how to tell a story that um, would appeal to the publishing world. So now tell us about that. Tell us about the importance of uh, critique groups. Oh, critique groups are the best because it's a long road. You know, I mean. I think that critique groups are important because when you're really, really, when you when you're deep into a project, um, you're so completely in love with it. You're you're like a mother and a newborn. You don't realize that okay, yeah, maybe his head looks funny or <laughs> or something. Um, you you you. I feel like I am always so much more articulate at critiquing other people's books than I am with mine because you're more I'm more objective. 
and we all have our blind spots. I mean, one of the things that I really loved about my love about my critique group is that we each have different strengths. You know, one of us might be particularly strong in dialogue. One of us might be a pacer. Another one is into really deep character development and description and, and emotional journey. Um, and so that's important in terms of the craft, but just as important is the um, is sort of the social aspect of it. And yeah. The cheerleading aspect of it, because when you're when you're in the trenches and you know querying and getting rejections, um, it's easy to to give up. But when other people believe in you, then you're so much more likely to to pers- persevere. Yeah, and it's from the publishing side, it's our first piece of advice. It's, it's the first question when anybody talks to me about, oh, I've been working on this book and I I I would like you to see it or I'd like you to recommend somebody to read it. The first thing I always ask is. Have you? Are you in a group? And is this going to be one of your first reads? Because you really don't want it to be. You really want to expose it to your peers and let them do exactly what you've talked about. You know, let them support it and let them see it from an objective point of view. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, though, take everything, every advice with a grain of salt because everybody has. Yeah, that's a good point. Subjective thing. I mean, so that's why I I like to get multiple data readers because if three people say the same thing then I'll change it. Right. If one person says the same says one thing and two people um disagree with it, I'll ask myself the question and right. and, and let my gut go with um Yeah, that's that's smart. So I also I often ask our authors and particularly our first time authors to talk to me a little bit about the publishing process, separate and distinct from everything that you've done to write the book and, and find you know find an editor for the book and, and find a house for the book. What has your experience been in terms of publishing? What was it like to work on the cover? What is it like to set up you know any publicity? I I, I always like to hear what the experience is like. It's it, it's really an experience unlike any other. So I guess the first thing that yeah the first thing that happens after the deal is the editorial letter and that is wonderful because unlike critique partners where you can always kind of second guess them this is this is it and it's so nice to be able to listen to someone yeah <laughs> to be able to have an assignment um because and this is this is the letter that, point, I'm sorry explain explain what that editorial letter oh, is oh sure the editorial letter is the letter that an author gets um after the publisher has acquired the book but when they want to shape it before it gets officially published. Mm-hmm. And um, it's extremely liberating as an author because until you get to that point, you never know what someone wants. Yeah. Um, you're always writing towards an, invi- towards an invisible audience or a, a group of editors. But then when you have your editor, it's so wonderful because you, you know that she loves your book and that she has a team that loves your book and that – she has a vision for your book, and that's really liberating. I mean, sometimes it can be hard to try to complete those assignments, but it's always good to know that there's someone who's who's where the book stops you know, yeah. in terms of yeah. changing. Because yeah. I know so many people who have, like, changed things for critique partners and then changed things for agents and then had things changed back to the original oh, by their yeah, editor. Funny. Yeah. Um, so that is a wonderful um, relationship that you have with someone who is the advocate for your book. Um, getting the cover is really, really interesting because for none of the above, I think we realized early on that we couldn't like slap a girl on the cover um, and we didn't want to. And I love what they did with the cover because um, 
you know, I'm sure you've heard a lot about the um, back and forth about girl covers versus boy covers. You know, right. there's a stereotype and a stereotype that is real that um, a quote girl book or even books written by female authors tend to have, you know, people on it and to be pink or you know, or soft colors, and that the male authors get the sort of the bold titles, you know, like the John Green Fulton, their stars, uh, graphic thing that right. can be read by both men and women. And that's what I love about None of the Above is that, that it, it is that sort of bold graphical cover that be both a good boy book and a girl book, and yep. or that would attract both girl and boy readers, and that would also attract an, a potential adult crossover audience because right. I do think there's a lot of appeal in that. Then, um, then, the, then there are the actual physical copies, which are amazing. Um, I had the weird experience. um, So I actually didn't um, get my ARCs before my first signing. And so I went to a book conference, the NAIBA um, fall conference, and I had to, like, go around and look for my ARCs because they had literally come straight from the printers. And so I remember going to a room and, like, having to cut through boxes and find them. And then, like, suddenly I had this book in my hand, and it was, it was it was amazing. It and was we should we should have had somebody there with a video camera. I know. You know I that would have been so fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because you, I had never I you... seen the packaging because it is not just the cover in the book. There's the, there's you know the thought that goes into the sign and the cover and the inside pages like the chapter headings. You know they did yeah. the neat thing where they put a cross through the chapter. Right. Um, and and I had seen that and to see the. The fully realized book is just amazing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you're pleased. Now, I want to ask you a couple of questions as a reader. What was the last book um, you spoke about with a friend, and what did you say? Oh, I feel like I speak about so many books. Um, the very last book? Every author I've ever spoken to really has to pause because they have that same reaction where they're like, well, I talk about books all the time. Let me try to remember what the last conversation. But I just feel like, you know, okay, what what are you talking about with your friends or in your book group or whatever it is? I, I, I always give some unusual answers. I mean, I think I'd be remiss not to mention um, Becky Albertalli's Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda because um, I got my finished hardcover of that. We're release date buddies, and our books are so complimentary. Now say the title a little bit more slowly. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Becky Albertalli and Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda. There you um, go. Which was pitched as um, You Got Mail with starring gay boys with good grammar, <laughs> uh, which is just such an adorable pitch, and it's an, it's an adorable deep, funny, important book, too. Now, if you had to recommend a book for a 13-year-old boy, so possibly a reluctant reader, um, in your experience, what book would you recommend? The best boy book I've read, the best book I've read read for uh, specifically that demographic is probably Lamar Giles' Fake ID, which is a really well-written thriller. Um, Great for girls, too. Um, but if you know, if you have a reluctant reader, um, it's a fast-paced, funny book, well-written, and um, has a great mystery. It was nominated for an Edgar. And lastly, were you to be banished to a desert island and you were only allowed to take three books, what would you take? Which would you take? Oh, that's an awful question. I know everybody hates it. I make them answer it anyway. Oh. I would probably take. Um, Jacqueline Woodson's Locomotion, 
Okay. Um, Megan Whalen Turner's Queen of Atolia. And oh, oh, I'm looking at my bookshelf and just crying. <laughs> <laughs> not because you're not sure what you're going to eat on this island or how you're going to no. get off. It's only that you can only take three. This is what brings you to tears. <sighs> Would it be terribly cliche to say to kill a mockingbird? No, not at all. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So, To Kill a Mockingbird is your third and final. That's, those so. are those are good choices, and I hope it nev- I hope you never have to choose. Thank you so much for writing none of the above. It, it's a great book that I think is very important, and and I appreciate your writing it. I enjoyed it tremendously, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.